Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and today we're going to bring you an older segment published on our podcast about two years ago when we sat down with Jordan Bauer, a senior research fellow and director of publishing here at the Acton Institute. In this episode, Mark Vandermoss, Acton's audio and visual manager, speaks with Jordan about the lasting importance of Abraham Kuyper, theologian, journalist, and prime minister of the Netherlands during the 20th century. Keep in mind that nearing the end of our episode today, Jordan mentions upcoming titles from Kuyper's collected works in public theology to be released by Lexham Press and the Acton Institute, some of which have already been published, including Common Grace, on the Church, Pro Reggae, and on Islam. You can buy these online at actonacton.org. And with that, let's begin the episode. I am uh, pleased to be joined today here in the Radio Free Acton studios by Jordan Baller. Jordan is Senior Research Fellow here at the Acton Institute and Director of Publishing. He serves as the Executive Editor of our Journal of Markets and Morality. And for our purposes today... His most interesting role is as general editor of the Abraham Kuyper Collected Works in Public Theology series. And uh, first of all, Jordan, welcome. It's been a while since we had you on the podcast, so glad to have you back. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to be down here. Well, it it is. This is the best part of the building, (laughs) clearly uh, the coolest part of the building. Um, We're we're talking about Abraham Kuyper here, and and, uh, Abraham Kuyper, of course, is a a Reformed theologian, a Dutch Reformed theologian, and one of the things that I've heard repeatedly from from Father Robert Sirico, the founder of the Acton Institute, he he references this in his his talks once in a while, is that he often gets questions about why he, as a Roman Catholic priest, would have established his institute in what he sort of tongue-in-cheek refers to as the Vatican of the Reformed faith. And you think about it, and, and yes, right here in the Grand Rapids, uh, West Michigan area, we have uh, the headquarters of the Christian Reformed Church in North America, uh, Calvin College and Seminary, which is the college of the CRC, uh, Hope College, uh, which is affiliated with the Reformed Church in America, also heavily present in Grand Rapids, also a, a, a Reformed institution of higher learning. Uh, you can go a little further afield, and uh, there's, uh, well, not going no further afield, Kuiper College right up the road from us here in Grand Rapids on the East Belt Line. Uh, and then uh, Cornerstone College, which isn't in the Reformed tradition, but also a Christian institution of higher learning. Uh, also Christian publishing, heavily uh, involved in the in the West Michigan area. A lot of the major publishers found their roots in sort of the Dutch Reformed uh, soil of this area. So how is it possible with all of this intellectual firepower uh, here gathered together in the Reformed and generally the Protestant side of the aisle that uh, there there has never been a, an English translation of Abraham Kuyper's major works? Well, that's a, a complicated question, I would say. First, I, I would say that uh, there has been some translation of Abraham Kuyper's works. Um, and even this series, as massive as it is, I think I've estimated it's going to be somewhere between two and a half to three million words over oh the 12 volumes. <laughs> yes, that's I think about this every morning. That's, a, that's a lot of general editing, I just uh, want to say. <laughs> well, that's the kind of editing I do. It's very general. <laughs> um, so even that is a, is, a, is a sliver of what he wrote. Um, so there have been works, you know, he's most famously perhaps to the extent that Kuiper is famous outside of these influential but still small circles that you just outlined sure. here in West Michigan. 
Uh, he's known for his lectures on Calvinism, the stone lectures that he gave at Princeton University. And that's, if anybody knows Kuiper, that's usually what it, the primary source that they referred to. There are other 20th century and, and, and um, even early contemporary translations of, of some of Kuiper's major works and the Holy Spirit, some of his devotional works and things like that. One of the things that's interesting about Kuiper is that he's such a dynamic and diverse figure with all these different facets and different aspects to his thought, different areas of engagement that you often get a kind of partial picture of him depending on how what kind of work you're reading or who's talking about him. Um, so that's part of the goal of this project is to take an important piece of what Kuiper was doing, uh, what we would call today his public theology, and provide more direct access to that because there's it's been 120 125 years since a number of these works were written. Um, and you hear a lot about Kuiper, and one of the goals is to give more direct access to him. Some of the works have not been translated for uh, various reasons. So uh, his works on common grace were controversial ecclesiastically. Um, so that for some, that would be a reason to put them into print, and some for some, that would be a reason to leave them in the Dutch. You know, another reason is that, to be honest, uh, the Dutch uh, migrations for a long time still had the linguistic skills to be able to read it directly. So there's a lot of people that I come across that have his uh, volumes on the Heidelberg Catechism in their home and they read them there or they read Pro Rega in the Dutch or De, De Camena Gracia in the, in the Dutch. And so that was still accessible Sure, that's, um, it, 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 for the main that, audience that would have been interested. In now that it. you mention it, I, I, I can recall probably 20 years ago, the last of the Dutch language services in the local reformed mm -hmm. churches here in Grand Rapids, the final one happened, you know, just just in the last couple of decades. So that that influence of the Dutch language lasted for a long time in the reformed churches. Yes. So this it's been relatively recently that this has start, started to decline, I would say, in terms of passing that language on to later generations. Um, we've got a kind of a, a critical mass of scholars, translators, editors, and people who are still who are interested in Kuiper, have the, the scholarly expertise, the knowledge, as well as the linguistic skills to, to pull off a massive project like this. I mean, I, it, it's hard for me to say it's been take, it's taken 125 years for some of these works to, to be, to appear, um, whether that would be possible in another 25 or 50 years, uh, it's debatable, I think. Sure. Um, so we've kind of you know, through Providence and through our own fumbling ways of working <laughs> forward to, to develop a project like this, tried to uh, really make accessible in his own words as best we can in English, you know, the English idiom to Anglo Anglophone speakers. Uh, this real, I mean, a theological genius, certainly. Um, someone who I learn from every time I read and work work through through his work. So... That's really the goal of the project is to is to present this dynamic figure as a source of inspiration as well as a cautionary tale in some respects um, to this to our contemporary situation, which in many ways is what Kuiper himself was trying to do in his own time. I know that there are people out there who are who are thinking this in their minds, so I should ask the question: How did Acton get involved in this major translation project of a Dutch Reformed sure. theologian? Well, as you mentioned, we're we're founded here in Grand Rapids in 1990, and there's always been uh, a kind of, I would say, informal, if not uh, substantive, ecumenical dynamic at the institute, which it functionally ended up being a Roman Catholic Reformed kind of a dialogue here at the Acton Institute. So we've always had a broadly Protestant, broadly ecumenical focus. It just happened that the kind of people who happened to live in Grand Rapids or be associated with the institute or who felt at home. 
uh, working in the Institute often were from these kinds of institutions that you've outlined, or they identified with Abraham Kuyper. And so it was natural from the beginning of the Institute to bring Roman Catholic social teaching and reformed social thought into dialogue. So the, the Acton Institute has been involved in examining the works of Abraham Kuyper in, uh, on their own and in dialogue with a variety of traditions for the entire life, life of the Institute. So we sponsored conferences in conjunction with Calvin College and things in the past. Uh, the genesis of this translation project really came about six or seven years ago, I would say. Uh, and the idea first was to really focus on Abraham Kuyper's Common Grace trilogy as a way of providing theological substance for cultural engagement, culture creation, um, a kind of theology of both culture and entrepreneurship and social thought, a, a kind of a robust vision for engaging positively in God's world as good stewards and as um, creative beings made in his image. So this was, uh, again, yeah, an attempt to try to make this resource available. So that was the first kind of centerpiece. And then over time, there was so much enthusiasm. There were, well, people would say, well, what about this work or that or this? And so um, Mel Flickema, who's a colleague here, who's the secretary of the Kuiper Translation Society, has helped coordinate a lot of this. And over time, you know, this, what, what, was a large enough project on its own evolved into something much bigger because we know there was the opportunity and then it, it made sense strategically. So now we've developed this larger 12 volume series. Three of those 12 volumes are the volumes on common grace, which I've mentioned. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about Kuiper and about his, uh, his work, uh, because I, I, I mentioned to you a little earlier, I'm reading through uh, pro reggae volume one, mm -hmm. and I'm finding that as I'm reading this book, I am finding instance after instance where I think, wow, Kuiper could be speaking to us today. He could be, he could be relaying uh, in, in the circumstances that he's talking about in Dutch culture in the early 20th century, he could be uh, very easily talking about American culture in the early 21st century. Um, and, and some of the things that he, that he, he talks about, the, the fact of, of the elites in the culture sort of abandoning Christianity, uh, disdaining it, uh, being indifferent to it, or even hostile to it, uh, the the difference, or he he uses the analogy of 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 the courtyard and the holy place to talk about uh, the church. How there are so many uh, Christians who are nominal Christians who exist kind of outside of that holy place. They are Christians in name. They mm -hmm. they believe what the Bible says, but they don't have a deep attachment to the faith. And then there's the smaller group of genuine believers inside the church. I think that's very a very real thing today in America and in general. He's he's concerned with the waning influence of Christianity on uh, his culture of the day, and uh, not only in the Netherlands, but I think Europe at large. And given given that sort of a cultural context, uh, what was Kuiper working toward? What was he hoping to accomplish with all of his work? Yeah, so uh, let me say a little bit about why I think Kuiper was, is so prescient, not only for his own time, but for today. I mean, part of the reason are the historical factors. So Kuiper was dealing with upheaval and transition in the Netherlands in the late 19th, early 20th century. And broadly speaking, in many ways, Europe is ahead of the United States, you could say. So part of it is that he was dealing with social trends um, and dynamics that would come later to the United States. So part of it's just that he was situated at, at a time and place where, that dealt with a number of these issues earlier. Um, so that accounts for part of it. So maybe that's 
50 of the years that he's ahead of his sure, time, right? Sure. Now we got to get the other 50 years. How do yeah. we account for this whole century in between his thought and ours um, or his time and ours? Part of it too is that the the, the dynamics, the, the the particulars may be slightly different, but the dynamics are, are the same in the sense that, um, you know, Kuiper was dealing with the transition from a kind of dominant confessionally oriented society even or confessionally identified so more specifically he would say you know a ref the the netherlands is a reformed nation sure in the same way that many would claim you know the united states is a kind of a christian nation that's less particular but still very particular right so as the netherlands was transitioning out of this time of being a, a kind of self-identified reformed nation as such and dealing with confessional diversity so catholics were having to you know increasingly becoming involved in public life, secular liberals of various kinds, socialists, materialist socialists of, of various kinds were coming, you know, there were all kinds of these movements going on. So Kuiper was dealing with this transition from what you could call a kind of a Christendom, broadly speaking, society to one that was much more diverse sure. and had to deal with questions of democracy and representation and social power in an increasingly diversified world. Well, that the dynamics are very similar. They're just ratched up to 11 in the United oh, States yes, today, yes. right? So instead of, you know, being post-Christendom, you could say many, many ways the challenge is post-Christian West, specifically in the United States. So if you substitute Christian for Reformed in much of Kuiper's writing, a lot of the analysis remains uh, similarly salient. So um, there are those aspects of his thought. And then the other thing I would say, without reflecting too much more on it, I mean... I've definitely thought about why he's he's still relevant, and part of it is just that that uh, theological geniuses, and I've used that word before already in our conversation, of bygone ages speak in a way, and they apply God's word and the Bible in a way to their times that by 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 itself get at the enduring truths, so sure. the the permanent things. So Kuiper was was trying to apply what you would call the enduring truths or you could identify as the enduring truths to his particular time and place, which is in many ways foreign and in many ways not so foreign. So sometimes the details will throw you for a loop and say, well, I don't know really what he's talking about or that, does, that just doesn't, that's an antiquated way of thinking about things. It doesn't really have any relevance. But more often than not, reading Kuiper, you'll find a positive or sometimes a negative model for engaging in, and this is the second part of your question. What was he trying to do? Yes. There's a kind of a term that gets it's it gets thrown around. It's it's a, I guess if you're in West Michigan, it's the kind of thing you hear all the time, right? The, <laughs> the architectonic critique. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. I was just I was just talking about that over lunch. Yeah, yes. which is just a fancy way of saying it was. It, it's Kuiper's vision is comprehensive, as broad, and as deep, and as high and wide as God's creation, this is as Kuiper's vision, you know, aimed to encompass all of that and to bring God's truth in all its forms to bear as widely, as wide as the cosmos. So it's a kind of a cosmic vision in that sense. Sure. Um, and so that, that's, that's the, the kind of architectonic critique to get down at what is the, the principial differences between worldviews, between ways of, approaching the world of society, of viewing the human person in relationship to God and relationship to other people. And this is part of what's so refreshing, I think, for people is that um, 
you get there's a, a kind of version of Christianity or of religious faith that is much more narrow and constricting. And so reading somebody with a with a such a cosmic vision as Kuiper, as I've said, can be refreshing. It's like opening a window in a in a musty sure. or dusty old room. And and the the reality is that we are in a time now where there is a very distinct battle between those who believe that uh, religious faith is an all encompassing uh, set of principles versus those who want to see religious faith constrained and restricted and, and view it as sort of a, a threat to freedom. That's just a conflict now that is happening regularly in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So part of um, one of one of the things Kuiper is known for is being an architect of the anti-revolutionary party, which many call the first modern political party. Uh, and the revolution that was in view was the French Revolution. So yes. Kuiper stands in a line with uh, Prinster before him in the Netherlands and, and other opponents of the French Revolution in a principled way, like Edmund Burke, certainly. Um and this is the kind of dynamic that Kuiper would say comes out of a revolutionary worldview, is you get this radical juxtaposition between private and public, between sacred and secular, uh, between uh, religious and objective, right? Sure, which is, sure. which is uh, or the kind of, you know, it's presaging the kind of naked public square language that, we, that you, you know, may be familiar with in mm-hmm. terms of what's allowable in terms of public discourse, claims to revelation, claims to... Or arguments that are grounded in even rather than just claims about are out of bounds. Sure. Yep. So uh, the rise of positivism is going on here, of course, too, in in the Enlightenment. So you've got a kind of fact value distinction that's behind a lot of this. And religious claims are inherently value laden, whereas scientific claims are inherently positive and can be counted on apart from opinion. Yeah. Um, Kuiper... is is not you mentioned this just a moment ago? He's, he's not without his flaws, you know. And the 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 good thing about this series, one of one of the good things about it, is that uh, it very very openly addresses some of the flaws that it really some some things that he says are, are rather shocking to a modern ear, especially when it comes to issues of say race. Sure, he will he has views that are very much of his time, and uh, and we don't flinch from that in in the uh in the analysis of kuiper and in any of the introductory materials that's that's something that's addressed head on um uh, kuiper also is not without his theological critics sure and uh you mentioned earlier this is he's he's been controversial um ecclesiastically and and one of the objections that i'm i'm most interested in when i hear it is is this uh the objection that kuiper's uh goal of Christianizing society, more or less, taking taking the society and, and you, Christians going out and using their skills and gifts to influence the society in a Christian direction. Um, it, it, the objection is, is, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm misstating this because I want to be fair to critics of Kuiper. Uh, that's not really what Christians are meant to do. That's mm-hmm. not the the chief end of the Christian faith, of course. Um, Talk a little bit about about what Kuiper's endgame was. There was was he looking to Christianize society, and if that's what he was doing, is that a legitimate thing for Christians in in any culture to be working toward? I yeah, I, I think this is a a very complicated and thorny issue. That's the kind of thing you'd expect a, a scholar to say. I suppose. Sure, and I want you to give me a, like a one minute answer. <laughs> It all depends on what you mean by Christianize. So you have to define your terms, I think, before you can... So there's a kind of a caricatured depiction of Kuiper or Neo-Calvinism that 
more contemporary self-proclaimed neo-Calvinists have done a lot to turn that caricature into a reality, you mm-hmm. could say. So I often talk about a kind of transformationalist excess, a kind of unwarranted optimism about what Christians are able to accomplish <laughs> socially yes, um, through the government or various other kinds of institutions. So, and, and often that goes on under the banner and in, in the name of Abraham Kuyper. And there's a great deal of that that I think is not authentically Kuyper. It may be, it may be uh, grounded in some of some aspects of his thinking. It may be more clearly grounded in aspects of later uh, sure. followers of Kuyper. So one of the goals of the series is to go back and read cut and be able to have access to read Kuyper for himself. What would, what, what did he say? And on that basis, what might he have said to some of these more contemporary um, developments in the orbit of his thought? You sure. Could say. Yeah. And so there's lots, I think, of legitimate concern about views of the Christian religion as a transformative force in society that overemphasizes what we're able to accomplish, the significance of that accomplishment. Often to the and this it maybe isn't a kind of a, a logical necessity, but it seems practical that that there's a zero sum game between the importance of the individual and the social. And so the more you emphasize social transformation, the less important individual piety or conversion becomes. So there's a, a, a large line of criticism that basically from Kuiper, you get a devaluation of the church and special revelation. And the hmm. church no, no longer becomes important because uh, to quote a former president of Calvin Theological Seminary, it's not more Christian to be a muck, muck farmer than it is to be a minister. So you hmm. get a kind of a radical leveling of all Christian identities, uh, which maybe doesn't necessarily devalue them all, but in practice, often it seems to. Um, So this is, I think, an entirely legitimate critique of what may be, and the debate is whether this is a a required development of Kuiper's thought, or is it, you know, and this is where I hope, I hope obviously, this is a live conversation today. I hope that these primary sources will help inform that conversation in a way that's that gets beyond labeling and uh name calling and denominational politics and these sorts of things yeah get back to the the original sources and actually look at what they say and then yeah inform the discussion a little bit better yeah or understand why critics of kuiper had the criticisms they had or or critics of later neo-calvinists um so common grace is one of these great controversial uh, church splitting kind of, uh, <laughs> debates. So, um, and I, I think it is important to understand why the criticisms are being made, even if you end up not agreeing with them or saying, yes, that's a danger, but it's not a, a danger that means that we therefore ought to throw this doctrine out or not sure. affirm it or something sure. like that. Sure. What do, you, what do you think Kuiper would, what would his stance be today for the church in, in modern America? What, <laughs> I, I, I just wonder how, how he would uh, advise us to go about our business in, an, in a culture that's rapidly de-Christianizing. Well, I can say for certain that one thing he would say is that you, we shouldn't withdraw from the world in the sense that we f- do what Christians often, and certainly Dutch Christians seem to do, create a kind of a bunker or colonial mentality where we 
hide out um, and keep the the flames of pure doctrine burning while the rest of the world <laughs> burns. Burns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now that is not to say that he wouldn't have advocated, as he did in his own time, creation of separate institutions, uh, principle-based institutions that were confessionally grounded and oriented in the realities of the relationship between God and human beings and human beings to one another in light of that, that divine human relationship. So there's a kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a balance between creating faithful institutions in a diverse and plural world while keeping those institutions properly oriented towards the service of others and not as is so often in the case, both in terms of Christian and secular institutions focused on maintenance of the institution itself. So confusing the, the good of the institution with the, the, the broader common good. Um, and the specifics of how that works out in the United, in the United States um, was going to be much different than Kuiper observed in his own time. You know, sure. he had very rosy views of the United States. He did visit. Um, but he thought, I mean, he spoke in glowing terms of the United States as a kind of a, the place where the, the true root of the Reformation could take root uh, or could, could blossom socially so you know kuiper even even kuiper's kind of rosy rose tinted view of the united states 100 years ago is much different than the reality of the united states very these much days. very much different yes um there one of the forthcoming volumes in the series is is a collection of kuiper's thoughts on the church um and one of the essays by by ad de Bryan at the theological university in Compton in the netherlands i think does a really good job contextualizing the tools that Kuiper's thought provides us with and indicating some of the ways that it might apply in our contemporary situation. So Kuiper, you know, thought in terms of the church question, the way the church relates to society, uh, that there was a kind of prudential judgment, you know, how far how, you had to think, well, how, how far have things gone? Is it time uh, to build these kinds of separate institutions yet? Or can we still work within more established mainline or public institutions and so on sure. those questions um, are never easy to answer uh, right it, 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 maybe it's getting a little easier nowadays but but that's a that's a thorny issue yeah is it i mean it, well i mean the the, the cop-out is uh, and certainly a protestant way of saying it uh, approach would be well, we've all got to figure it out for ourselves <laughs> um but you know there's a certain amount of truth to that i mean there's you can talk broadly about vocation and being faithful but the reality is in the end we are responsible to God for the gifts that he's given us and to use our prudential wisdom to form our consciences and our moral judgments in a way uh, that's responsible and appropriate. Um, so we can look for guidance to great figures like Augustine and Calvin and Luther and um, Thomas Aquinas and uh, Abraham Kuyper. And there's a lot of wisdom to be found there, but in the end it's not going to be, um, up to them how we live our lives both in you know in terms of our individual identities and our social identities let's uh you you mentioned the on the church volume yep. that's uh, to be released i believe if i if i heard correctly sometime in the october to november time frame yes yet this year right and correct then, uh, the, the, do we have a schedule for further releases beyond that so the volumes that are out the first volume was a translation of uh our program which was kuiper's commentary on the anti-revolutionary party platform uh, 
That was the first volume. The next volume was volume one of Common Grace. The third volume that was released was volume one of Pro Rega, which you've mentioned. So yep. those are the three volumes that are out on the church is, as I mentioned, an anthology of, of Kuiper's varied reflections on what you would call ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, the application of ecclesiology to contemporary concerns. So there's some, some important works in that include his, uh, his sermon rooted and grounded, which is the, is the source, the proximate, the primary source for his uh, really important distinction between the church as an institution as a church and organism. Another one of these controversial kinds of things, <laughs> contributions that, that Kuiper's made some affirm this distinction. Some uh, think it's specious and really problematic and leads to lots of, of, of bad consequences. If you, if you identify it. So anyway, uh, but it, now we have the primary source. Really, you can ex access and read read Kuiper's sure. argument for yourself, and evaluate it on your own. So those are the those will be the four volume the first four volumes on the churches due out later this year. The next one in the queue is Pro Rega Volume Two. And that and Pro Rega and Common Grace are both three volume trilogies, which is redundant, I suppose. Three yes, volume it, sets. It, you uh, might say that, yeah. <laughs> We only have two of them that are trilogies, so there's not three three-volume trilogies. Anyway, so those will be six of the volumes in this series. Uh, our program, it would be seven, and then there are uh, five thematic anthologies. I've mentioned one of them on the church. We have one on education, which was one of the key social and political questions that Kuiper engaged with was the legitimacy of alternative or opposition schools, so to speak, both within the the context of what we would call uh, primary and secondary education as well as post-secondary schooling. So uh, there'll be a volume on education. On business and economics, we're here at the Acton Institute. Um, it's a really, we care a lot about business we, and we've economics. We've talked about those issues before, <laughs> I believe, yes. Kuiper uh, never wrote a kind of a separate full treatise on these topics, but there's a lot that, that can be gleaned helpfully from his his, his writings on business and economics and his reflection on the legitimacy of the cultural mandate, so to speak, and entrepreneurial effort in the, in, in the commercial society or commercial aspects of society. Um, we have a volume on Islam. So you mentioned Pro Rega. He opens the first volume of Pro Rega with this really powerful juxtaposition between the way that Islam views the prophet and Christianity views the Christ. And the way that our societies reflect what we confess versus what we how we actually behave, um, and so even if Muhammad doesn't have this a comparable status to Jesus Christ, the word the the God the God Man in Christianity, the, the reverence for Muhammad is in many ways far surpasses far beyond what Christians what Christians expressed. how we how we care for the name of Christ so to speak, mm -hmm. um, and so he opens pro rega with this really. I think convicting, I think comparison. Oh, you're right. It is. It is. Um, and so this volume on Islam picks up on, on some of that dynamic. He, after he, his, his party lost the elections and he was no longer prime minister. He, he took a tour around the Mediterranean and collected his, he wrote constantly. He, he collected his travel logs and published them in, in two volumes and there are some really important critical reflections again that are re relevant now. Oh yeah, especially in the in the confrontation or the the meeting, the increasing meeting between Islam and uh, what's historically been identified as the Christian West, 
even if it that Christianity is the courtyard kind of Christianity oh, yeah. you referred to earlier. Yes. So there's a volume on Islam, um, and then uh, one on charity and justice, and I think that's five. And those I, these are so the some of the critical pieces in that will be uh, his speech at the opening of the Christian Social Congress in 1891, 125 years ago. Uh, it's come over into English as the problem of poverty. That's probably the way it's best known. The speech itself was uh, uh, the type. The title was the Christian religion, the social question in the Christian religion, and it was an analogous, I would say, attempt to apply reformed social thought to the upheaval of industrialization, uh, economic liberalism, and and forms of collectivism at the end of the nineteenth century. From a Kuiper was doing it from a reformed perspective. It's analogous to a document that inaugurated Roman Catholic social teaching earlier that year, Rerum Novarum, uh, from Pope Leo the 13th. What an interesting coincidence that, that those would come in the same year. Well, it is, it's a, it's a kind of a happy coincidence. Um, but my, we will be, I do plan to release a, a, um, a primary source reader of those two volumes yet later this year, but that, that newly translated complete for the first time volume will be in on charity and justice, which is, is going to round out our 12 volume series. Uh, one of the one of the features, uh, particularly of that essay, and I would say in general of these of these um, translations, is that we're trying to be comprehensive. We're not we're not uh, going to be sugarcoating Kuiper, or it's it you know these are almost in every case unabridged wherever Just we unvarnished Kuiper, <laughs> yeah, straight from the drinking straight from the Kuiperian fire hose, exactly yes. Um, and so uh, the the this speech in particular. There are many notes that are either absent or really abbreviated in previous English translations, and that's entire. I can understand why that happened. Those those additions are still useful, but for scholars who want to investigate, say the the history of the interaction between Reformed and Roman Catholic social thought, these are really critical footnotes because they show not only was Kuiper aware of what was going on uh, in the Roman Catholic circles, but he was really well read and really deeply engaged in alternative and in many ways complementary in some ways um and uh, and opposed ways of addressing the, the religion and the social question and uh, the three volumes that are out now are available on amazon you can get them at the acton bookshop uh, just head to our homepage at acton.org and uh, you can pick them up uh, that's the, the that's the best deal Oh yeah, the 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 best deal would the be the best deal is to get them at the the physical copies of the Acton Bookshop. the The publisher of the volumes is Lexham Press, which is a an imprint of Faith Life, which is which publishes Logos Bible Software. So all of these volumes are also available through Logos Bible Software. So you can you can down, you could have them immediately as soon as you pay. You can download them and use them through the software, which is a very powerful software tool. I don't know if you've ever, that's that's a it's a great way to engage these. Works. I've heard lots of good things about Logos. I just I can't afford it right now. But you know, <laughs> maybe I, I should have Acton buy it for me. Can but, you afford not to have it? That's the real. <laughs> you're asking the wrong question. The, these volumes, though, the hardcover volumes are just beautiful books and uh, a lot of really interesting, thought-provoking material. Jordan, thank you so much for coming down and sharing some time with us, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back again. Uh, before too long. It's been too long since you've been here. Happy to do it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Jordan. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you to all our listeners out there. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Are you a regular listener of Radio Free Acton? If so, we want to hear from you. You can email us at rfa at acton.org 
or you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180 to let us know what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. Lastly, if you liked today's episode, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore. 